I'm running this op. I don't know. You're the Sherpa. <laughs> I'm the Sherpa. <laughs> yeah. Hey, guys, uh, if you go into this corner, it, something really cool happens. What corner? <laughs> I don't know. Wait, or oh, stand in front of this piston. I totally <laughs> didn't realize you were still joking about that. <laughs> I was like, I don't know what you're talking about, but I will do it. <laughs> something I read is that apparently next week they're doing Iron Banner, and it's going to be um, the first time they're doing a Mayhem version of it. It's just like Mayhem Clash. Oh, really? So Wow. I was throwing that in there. I'm probably going to at least try playing that because I find that to be fun because I don't have to worry about being a much poorer shot than everyone else. Yeah, because your super will be up like every five seconds. Mm -hmm. I used Mayhem to get a lot of my grenade kills for the subclass bounties. And I would just stand at like as far away as I could and just chuck grenades into the center of the map. I could definitely see that working with the Titan that has the thermite grenade. Yes. Yes, it does. <laughs> it also works with um, several of the hunter grenades. It's like a mortar. The melee part would be the more difficult one of those. Yeah. I think I did that on the warlocks and didn't bother with the other two yet. I don't know if I will. <laughs> yeah. The hunter ones, I, I guess I'm kind of biased since we are always inclined to think that our own classes are underpowered, but I thought the hunter ones were especially annoying. At least you guys have ranged melees. Hey, at least you have a melee that doesn't burn up when you don't actually use it. Okay. You got, yeah, he's got a point. You could throw the, throw the knife without hitting any. Yeah. yeah. I could see that being annoying. What's the Titan ones. Maybe I'm imagining it, but it seems like they have almost sort of a vacuum effect on them. So if you're close, it kind of registers anyway. I've never experienced that, but I'm really bad at melee, so I wouldn't be surprised if it does, in fact, have that ability, and I just never was able to trigger it. Like, just for instance, if you're, like, super close to hitting somebody in the head, but you're, like, just a little bit off, it seems like it kind of zeroes in to me. Hmm. But, for instance, if you try to throw uh, a throwing knife at somebody's head with a hunter and you're a little bit off, instead of hitting them, you throw your knife into nothing. And you burn up your power. You don't get like an overshield or anything. That's just it. What's the um, melee for a blade dancer? You like blink and smack someone. Or blink and stab someone. Sorry. Yeah. It's blink strike, but the... <laughs> I'm imagining someone... The hunter just actually blinking with their eyes and then stabbing someone. <laughs> 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 yeah, Trevor, I think it's underpowered. <laughs> um, <laughs> instead of actually having any increased um, damage or ability to hurt, there's just a slight feeling of remorse. They do not kill without blinking. They just, they're kind of like, oh man, kind of hurts my heart a little bit, but squish. Wait, what? <laughs> That's when I like, I just think of like, you know, you see somebody does something without blinking. Oh, oh okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, but like they totally are blinking. You were going along with my joke still. I thought you were oh, yeah. being serious. <laughs> okay. Kind of like the Sherpa thing earlier. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh man, I lost my thread there. What was, oh, so blink strike, it, it's not as long range as the actual blink ability. 
and that took me a really long time to get used to when I started using Blade Dancer because I assumed that it would have the same range. And so there were a lot of times I'd be swinging at somebody when they were out of reach. Actually, hunters are probably the best for the mayhem thing just because they all seem to run Night Stalker, which just defeats the purpose of the mode because they just go around firing their super and ability-canceling arrows everywhere. Yeah, that's true. I can see that happening. That always frustrated me when I would pop... I'd work really hard to earn up enough super juice. <laughs> Don't and call then, it that. Then I'd... What's that? <laughs> Go on, continue talking. Okay, and then I'd, I'd pop my super and be like, yes, I can finally get a kill... Oh, arrow. <laughs> that happened more than yeah, I'd Yeah, they get like three of them admit. if they spec it that way. Yeah. Did you play at all while there was the infinite quiver bug? Um, I don't know. Wait. It, it, if I did, I just died like I normally do, so I didn't notice any difference. Okay. Trevor got kicked Quiver out for me. is... No, he's still the here, to... Matthew. Yeah. That, we'll see I've never had this happen before. This is weird. Quiver is supposed to give you three very short-lived... What are they called? Arrows. Uh, uh, sh- I can't remember what they're called. The shadow shots. Things. Shadow shots. But there's like a name for the anchor thing. Yes. Uh, but yeah, Matthew, you basically get you. three. What's that? Trevor, can you hear Matthew? No. No, he can't hear you, Matthew. Oh, bother. Should we start over? I don't know. This is really good. We should include this in the show. For the listener, we're talking about Destiny, a game that we don't actually play together anymore, but used to all the time. But then we started a podcast. Like, that's when I stopped playing. Um, can he get out and join back in? I think you can. Matthew or me? Uh, Matthew. Matthew should be able to leave and come Yeah, I, that's what I told him. I thought we wouldn't have these chat issues anymore once we stopped being on Xbox Live. <laughs> well, we know it's not my top-of-the-line modem. Matthew. Yes. Matthew. Hey, there's two of you. That's not good. Oh, now there's only one. Okay, good. Normally that means you have a problem with something. No, it doesn't mean that I have the problem. I have a top-of-the-line modem. (laughs) (laughs) It's not my fault. (laughs) So anyway, Quiver Quiver provides three mini shadow shots that don't last very long. But there was a bug for a while where it would basically, if you were using that particular perk, it would give you unlimited shots so you just kept shadow shooting all over the place yeah so a lot of night stalkers would run into crucible and just do that everywhere all the time and it was an iron banner week too yeah oh man they shut down <laughs> yeah. um the trials that week oh that makes sense because they realized they it was not good they were like oh shadow shot yeah as soon as I noticed the bug, I switched to another subclass, but a lot of other people did not. <laughs> Why did you switch? Because I didn't want to use a bug to cheat. Mm. Or as other people just say, finally, I'm playing as good as I know I am. <laughs> <laughs> or finally, I can maybe have a chance to win. <laughs> that would be me. Yeah. Trevor's good enough that he doesn't need to cheat. But not now after I haven't played for five months. Four months. You're too modest. 
And Dustin, you don't need to cheat uh, with that top of the line modem. Your connection's <laughs> so on point that it can carry you to victory on that on strength of connection alone. Data speed. <laughs> Instead of God speed, data speed. I don't know. <laughs> if I went and played Crucible right now, I bet my KD would be under 0. 0.5. 0. 0.5 under awesome. Now I'm confused. Is that a Star Trek reference? No. 0. 0.5 under awesome? No, I just made that up. Star Trek doesn't have like 0. 0.5 warp things or whatever. Uh, Yeah. Or, I mean, I guess that's a Star Wars thing. 0. 0.5 past light speed. Although it doesn't mean anything in Star Wars. Does it mean anything in Star Trek? It's the warp factor. I don't I have no idea what I'm talking about now. <laughs> well, you got that Star Wars or Star Trek comic. I did. It had no effect on me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, data. <laughs> um are warp factors integers? Usually, but they they have decimal places. Yeah. Y- you don't usually see it until you are trying to max out your warp. I feel like they said something about the number being not quite exponential, but it's not just like, it. I don't know. I don't remember. It's not like an integer multiplier. Is it log- log- logarithmic? Why can't I see this word? That's a simple word. Logarithmic. Logarithmic would be, I would hope it's not logarithmic. <laughs> the highest they can go is about a thousand times the speed of light. And they can't go. It's pretty fast. They can't go faster than that because of a, at least on their techno, the way warp technology works, it's um, a theoretical impossibility to go faster than that because then you'd be in a trans warp speed, which is some technological gook. They make it sound impossible, but you, yeah, it's just like the next scientific frontier that they'd probably get to in another hundred years or so. And I think it's warping space, isn't it? That's how they're able to travel faster than light. Um, the two thingies on the sides of all the ships. The nacelles. Yeah. Um, I sorry, I couldn't think of the word. Yeah, it, that's fine. It has something to do with that. Like you're essentially with their anti. That ones, I think one's like matter, and the other's antimatter, or something like that. And it yeah, essentially does that. So Trevor, they're not actually um traveling faster than light. They're shortening the distance they're traveling kind of but with the essential with the effect of traveling faster than light it it would be like in dune they fold space okay that i was about to ask i should point out that they per their technology they view the the faster than about a thousand times is a uh technological impossibility but the borg can do it really easily yeah call we using they just call it trans war Welcome to Better Worlds, a podcast exploring geek culture across mediums. Is it mediums? Is that what we're saying? Yes. I'm Dustin. I'm Matthew. And I'm Trevor. Trevor, how hard will that be to parse out? I don't really know what just happened. (laughs) (laughs) There was a lull sly intro. I got a, a message from listener Curtis that I looked at on my watch right as things were happening and suddenly I realized that it might be my turn to say my name so I did did I get it right <laughs> yes you did good job I applaud you 
Wait, is that message regarding the secret empire? It is. How is he? How... Okay. <laughs> Never. What? I don't understand how he is holding Thor's hammer if he okay. is now Hydra. Okay, well, we're already deep into follow-up, aren't we? Yes, we are. So, did you guys go to Free Comic Book Day? <laughs> What'd you pick up? Did you see the new Secret Empire? Okay. <laughs> Explain. Um, okay. <laughs> worthy doesn't mean good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, okay, so... Backing up just a little bit, we, um, a few weeks ago, a few episodes ago, we talked about how I have one comic book that Matthew gave me specifically because it has Captain America wielding the hammer. Uh, so this free comic book day comic, um, the secret empire preview thing, uh, to fill in for those who haven't read it, it has Captain Hydra America holding the hammer and it specifically says that he is worthy, which I mean, if that's not obvious enough from him holding the hammer. So Matthew, do you have anything for us? Um, I look at it this way. There's been plenty of times where Thor got mind controlled by an evil entity and he could still use his hammer, even though he was essentially evil at that point. It didn't mean he could, all of a sudden no longer be worthy. He was still at his core worthy. And Steve Rogers, even though he's batting for the other team, it the hammer is still judging him as a person worthy. Does the hammer only care about power? I don't think it measures power. What is what does it care about? That's the fun nebulous thing that writers get to play around with. The worth factor. Right now... He's a worth factor 9.5. Right <laughs> right now, Thor's... I guess I have to leave in the warp factor stuff now. We we don't want to get into trans worth factors. That's just a technical impact. Are you doing this just so I have to leave in the Star Trek stuff? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well played. <laughs> I mean, right now, Thor's not worthy. So he can't even... You can lose worthiness. But... <laughs> And you store up worthiness and use it on a rainy day. I think the canonical thing in Marvel right now is that the um, hammer has a the cosmic storm, which is, I guess, almost like a entity bound up in it. So convince a cosmic storm that you're worthy and you're good to go. Is it made up of worth anti-worth particles? Um, if you want to define Uru as anti-worth and Cosmic Storms as worth, then sure. <laughs> I do, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> so, is the basic summary that we have no idea what's going on with Captain America of Hydra using the hammer? I think why they put that in there is they want you to know that he himself is convinced that what he is doing is absolutely good and right and there is no conflict within him that would make him think he is on the wrong side. Except for when he says, Hail Hydra. But it, uh, if you followed any of this, they, yeah. He, his entire history has been, that you would say, rewritten, but they're making it play like this is how it always was. Because how much, how deep do we want to get into this? <laughs> Pretty deep, because this is making me mad. So, right now, they have it set up that, uh, okay, a while back there was, do you remember the 
what looks like is this is this spoiler stuff for people who read comics um it could be depending on how far back they're going it's not it's a, several years like a year or two ago spoilers steve rogers is captain america oh my <laughs> his history's been let's just say to simplify has been rewritten so breaking news captain america unmasked <laughs> i'm sorry matthew I'll, I'll let you talk now so that history's been rewritten so that he was always for through the entirety of history a hydra agent and he was in not not indoctrinated but he had a loving experience with hydra at an early age growing up on the streets of new york and has always been dedicated to hydra and i'm pretty sure during this he offed the red skull or something like that because he thought his version of hydra was a perversion of what hydra should be so he's got a very dedicated vision and has like been making he made friends with like baron zemo and all of that fun stuff and this kids is why people don't like retcon except they've made it so that they're saying the him ever being not a hydra agent was the retcon because the allies at the end of world war ii in marvel now use the cosmic cube to change the story and the allies won world war ii they're saying the original thing that was set up was that they did not so it's been (laughs) (laughs) so they're saying that the current reality is in fact a retcon the the reality you know is a retcon and that the cosmic cube has now been used just to restore it back to the original state so they're back to the mirror universe explaining the rec version (laughs) they're explaining the retcon by saying that what you are in now is a retcon and it's undoing the retcon oh my goodness Oh, jeez. Are they turning Captain America into Grant Ward from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? <laughs> it is... Pot- I hadn't thought of that. Like There is sort of a prototype there, I guess. Um, except that's more of the cinematic universe. But sure, I guess that could work. They'll, If you're upset about it, it'll be changed back in a year. But they said they're not going to do that so frequently anymore. It'll change back by the end of the event or something. <laughs> But then will that be a retcon or will that be reverting to reality? Like They'll have someone come in. Man, and, paradigm shift. They'll have someone come in that say like, no, it was never. I don't know. They'll, they'll justify it somehow to get back to the baseline they want. The game master will come and set things straight. Pretend it's like math where you know what you have at the beginning and you know. And then you get to make up the answer you want at the end, and you can then do whatever crazy steps you want as long as they can't kind of sort of logically connect. That's called a proof. <laughs> I write them all the time. <laughs> anyway, check out. I don't even know if I want to say check out. So that's the crazy stuff that's happening in there right now. Trevor, I'm kind of shocked that you got that one. Secret Empire? Yeah, after Matthew explained it, you weren't very keen on the idea, and I thought I remembered. You or him. Oh, I think you said, I don't think I'll be reading that one. And Matthew said, I think that's the the general sentiment or something similar to that. I think you're right. Um, So now that we've already gone into the depths of our free comic book day follow up, um, back to the top of it. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) The store that I went to allowed four free comic books. So I picked up Buffy, All New Guardians. And Secret Empire. And? Star Wars The New Gungan. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> okay, fine. I got the Star Trek one. Um, you have chosen wisely. That came to mind like a picture, like the front would just be like Jar Jar chopping through a door like Jack Nicholson in The Shining, and but has a speech bubble like, it, Misa here. It's a Misa. <laughs> if you guys are into that kind of thing, you should totally watch Star Wars The Clone Wars. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> that exact situation does not happen, but he does have several episodes where he's the main character. He is, in fact, voiced by Ahmed Best. Any fans of Jar Jar, definitely check that out. Um, now that nobody's listening anymore, <laughs> except for the various other Jar Jar fans that I have encountered. And Ahmed Best. Betsy picked up Doctor Who and Wonder Woman. Good choices. Well, good choice. Um, and a couple others. I read those two. Um, I haven't read her other two yet. I might not. Um, so my general assessment is it's kind of annoying getting all these like really brief previews. I found the Star Trek one to be especially egregious because it's previews of like five different comics and it's literally just three pages each. Yeah, I haven't read that one yet. Oh, okay. The main one that's on the cover has more than three pages, but it's still not really a standalone thing. Yeah, I flipped through it after... I got home and realized that there were, I saw three different stories, but okay. Yeah. I'm the, the doctor who one kind of read as a, a standalone story. I don't think it was a preview per se. And the Buffy one was also a standalone and the Buffy one. I thought the story was actually decent. It was obviously a very small, not particularly important story, but I enjoyed it. The preview version of comics is more of the norm for yeah. free comic book day. Yeah. I, I really appreciated that the Buffy one did not take that format. It actually takes place in a comic book shop. Hmm. And it includes Xander recommending that Buffy should look at Shadowcat. That's full circle somehow. <laughs> if I watched Buffy, I'm sure I would appreciate that a lot more. Um, yeah, it does, I don't know if it means anything to me, but I thought I would mention that to Matthew. I think Joss Whedon has either said that's his favorite superhero or that he has pat, he patterned Buffy in some ways after her. Actually, now that you say that, I think I remember hearing that. Um, the comic book shop also has a Serenity poster and a whole lot of Dark Horse comics in it. So what comics did you buy? I bought... Um, <laughs> So I mentioned in that episode that I probably wouldn't get any Star Wars ones, even though that's kind of my main comic reading, just because the library has most of them. Then I realized, first, the store didn't seem to have any Hawkeye stuff, so that wasn't an option. They were sold out of Black Panther, which I had said was called T'Challa. I don't know why I said that. It is just called Black Panther, but they were sold out. Um, so I went over and was flipping through the... Star Wars ones, and I noticed there was one trade paperback that the library doesn't have, and I was about to buy it, but then I realized that they had in their $1 back issues, they had issues 3 through 13 of the same comic, so I just bought all of those, as well as Shadows of the Empire number 1, which is from the 90s, and so now I need to find Star Wars Kanan, The Last Padawan, issues 1 and 2. But I have no idea so what to do. I have a question. Yeah. Was the collection that you were about to buy 1 through 13? 
No, it was one through five. Okay. So let's see. I think it's, or maybe one through six. I think why, it's. Why didn't you get then the collection to have one through six and then seven through 13 of the. The back issues were way cheaper. Yeah, but then you would have had all of them. In different formats. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the trade paperback was like 20 bucks for five or six issues. And then the back issues that they had covered the entire second trade paperback and one further than that, which everything I looked at online said there were only 12 issues and they had the 13th one. So they must be continuing that or it's unlucky or or it's unlucky maybe it's like a misprinted one it's actually issue one but it's misprinted i don't know um or it's like the 14th floor in the twilight zone anyway yeah i wanted to have them all in the same format and the back issues were way cheaper and it's kind of cool to have the actual floppies instead of the trade paperbacks but yeah we're kind of going along on this what did you guys have to say about your free comic book day experiences i took the kids uh we uh our comic book store allowed us to get six it's hard to pick 18 comics <laughs> so instead i just let them pick whatever they wanted and we have a lot of duplicates um but that's okay because they each have their own and they got they had some free choice in in what they got. So they also were given uh, Pokemon starter packs from someone at the store. They, the store had tables of people with different tabletop games that they were, I don't know if they were peddling them or just trying to get people interested in other things too. Um, and this guy was, they have some kind of Pokemon league that they do to help with reading and math or whatever. I don't know. Um, and so I want to know which one of you guys is going to teach my kids how to play Pokemon. What do you, Pokemon's an electronic game. What do you mean a starter pack? <laughs> I'm confused by what you mean. Like cards or were they small figurines or what? Are you being serious right now, Matthew? You're joking, right? Are you talking about the the card game? I don't know. You're saying a Pokemon starter pack, so I'm going to assume it's cards, but there might be a game out there I don't know about. That's tiny figurines. Okay. Um, Pokemon started as cards first and then expanded into like Game Boy and things beyond that. So it's it's Pokemon cards. <laughs> this is surprisingly tense. <laughs> I, d I just am confused. I thought you guys were into Pokemon, and now, yeah, I'm just taken off guard, I guess. So, Pokemon cards. They got a pack of Pokemon cards, and I don't know anything about Pokemon. I'm just saying the medium through which people typically know it is not the card game. Okay. I didn't know that. It's typically the game, like the electronic game. All I know is when I was a... The franchise began as a pair of video games for the original Game Boy that were developed by Game Freak and published by Nintendo. Oh, I didn't know that. I'm sorry. Oh, so the cards actually came later. <laughs> yes, I thought... That's My... what I thought. I was like, have I been wrong about this the whole time? I thought the cards followed the games. 
which I did not realize that my mistake. I'll, all I know is when I was in sixth grade, these cards were all the rage and I did not find them interesting. And then they kind of receded and people were playing them on the game boy. And then all of a sudden now Pokemon go is a thing and everyone loves Pokemon again. Because it captured the nostalgia of the first generation of games. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I understand. <laughs> I understand that. I just don't get Pokemon at all. And I've never played it, so I was just going... I was making a joke, like, which one of you guys is going to teach my kids? But this has gone way more, like Trevor said, tense than (laughs) I thought it would be. I think Matthew went to Wikipedia to check on which one came first. Okay. And we took it as extended silence. Yeah. So, uh, surprise, surprise, the guy that doesn't know anything about Pokemon was wrong about which came first. But the first place I had learned of it was the cards. I don't actually know anything about Pokemon. I played Go for a little bit, but that's it. Well, you guys are disappointing. From what I've heard, the cards are like uh, essentially just a gateway drug to get people into playing games like that. And that people who are into it eventually end up in Magic. Or Yu-Gi-Oh! I've heard Yu-Gi-Oh! is the stepping stone between the two of those. But then some people just seem to circumvent that nowadays whatever it's all card games to me and i don't play any of them same so i bought uh dc rebirth and the first flash of the rebirth series and was told three or four times by different people in the store that those were awesome comics and so there are other DC fans out there, guys. I didn't disagree with you. I only ever encounter <laughs> DC fans. Oh, really? I never encounter Marvel fans. It's the opposite for me. Maybe there's like a weird selection bias going on here. I feel like I also only encounter DC fans in general, in terms of the movies, at least. Where it was <laughs> in, like, yeah, well, the DC really? movies are like really deep. The Marvel ones are just like bubblegum, cotton candy stuff. Really? I've never heard that. Again, I've only heard good things about the Marvel movies. Okay. So I think I, that's why I tend to get kind of defensive, even though we don't actually disagree that much about the Marvel movies. And that's, I guess, why I get defensive about the DC movies, except for Suicide Squad. <laughs> um, did you guys have any other follow-up? I do not. I have in my hand a book, and the book's title is Fin Facts. <laughs> are you serious i am serious oh like you know facts about finn from adventure time cool no uh <laughs> facts about dolphins facts about <laughs> dolphins. finland and Finns. um i bet you know we've been playing the music for uh our podcasts for several weeks now for the listener who isn't very astute at listening that is the national anthem of finland matthew have you wondered what the words are i have for that yes well let me read them to you i'm not going to read them in finnish i i I was (laughs) bracing myself (laughs) (laughs) though apparently in finland the the country finland is called suomi or Mm -hmm. something like that s-u-o-m-i um also 
brief aside, it is pronounced sauna, as this book points out. We speak English. I don't care. Our land, our land, our fatherland, sound loud, O name of worth. No mount that meets the heaven's band, no hidden veil, no wave-shed strand, is loved as is our native north, our own forefathers' earth. Thy blossom in the bud laid low, yet ripened shall upspring. See, from our love once more shall grow, thy light, thy joy, thy hope, thy glow, and clear, clearer yet one day shall ring the song our land shall sing. It's very florid. <laughs> it was very florid. Trevor, you uh, mentioned birds and such. Would you like to know the national bird of Finland? Oh, when did I mention birds? In the very first episode when you were trying to rush us through the Finnish talk. Oh, I said there weren't any birds in Finland. Yeah, there weren't any birds. There aren't any trees. There isn't any economy, which is all blatantly false. But I forget, Trevor. I really want to know what the bird is. It's the trumpeter swan. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. I, you know, I could see that. Good choice, Finland. We have a whole book. National flower. Guess. The trumpeter tulip. <laughs> good guess, but no. The violet. The lily of the valley. Oh. Figures. What's their national animal? The reindeer. Nope. Darn. That's what I would have guessed. The trumpeter swan. Nope. It's the bear. <laughs> Wait, just the bear? Yeah. The trumpeter bear? It just says bear. Like, not even a, <laughs> <laughs> not even a type of bear. That's kind of like bear. saying, what's your national aquatic creature? Fish. <laughs> <laughs> Though something that I learned a while back is that there aren't actually very many species of bear. No, there's only... Didn't Wasn't the discussion we had, there's only like eight? I don't remember if we had this discussion. But yeah, brown bear is a species of bear, and grizzly bear is not actually a species. It would be more of a, a subspecies. Under, yeah, there's like brown, black, polar, Asiatic, um, sun, sloth. Klondike. Panda. Klondike would be a subspecies. What? Trevor said Klondike, and I said Klondike would be a subspecies. Did it? Pretty sure it's just an ice cream bar. Did that get eight? It was... Oh. Sun, sloth, panda, Asiatic. Kodiak. Black, brown, polar. I'm missing one. Did I say panda again? I don't know. Anyway, this is dumb. Let's continue. <laughs> I That's why I said Klondike, because I was <laughs> trying to sabotage again. So they're probably talking about brown bear. The, uh, the tree is... Oh, I bet you could guess what their national tree is. Think sauna. The trumpeter pine. <laughs> <laughs> Again, close, but no. Just go ahead. What is it? A birch. Oh. Mm -hmm. Birch. Because they use birch branches in saunas. The national fish is a perch, and the national rock is granite. So that that's all the fun facts for today. Just wait till next week. I feel like we're building up to eventually like doing an episode in a sauna. <laughs> Maybe. That will not be good for my laptop. <laughs> <laughs> it might help. No, it wouldn't help cool mine off. Yeah. The fan would be really bad. But great for your pores. This is true. So we want to talk about Arrival. Are we doing any more follow-up? Are we doing? I don't know. I don't think so. I don't have any more follow-up. Okay. I just have some quick things. Oh, go ahead. Um, 
I forgot to mention this last time we recorded, but I found out after doing the free comic book day episode that my local library was doing free comic book day. I thought about going there because that is where I get most of my comics, but it sounded like you could only get one. So I didn't, um, but I thought it was kind of cool that they did that. Trevor, if you could only get one, you probably would have gotten the Star Trek one, right? Uh, sure. (laughs) I definitely would have gotten the Buffy one. Um, also in last, in the last episode, I said that something was not an incontrovertible problem. I was totally misusing that word. I was looking for a word meaning a problem that is almost impossible to solve, maybe inscrutable, but um, I'm, I couldn't find an exact fit for the word that I thought existed. This sounds like a, a job for listener follow-up or listener feedback. Maybe. Um, I can't remember what the context was either, but I said that something was not... Oh, um, I was talking about Bill Nye's issue of like trying to be really straightforward, but also not being too harsh that people would just stop listening. Um, and I, I was trying to communicate that it would be a, a difficult problem for him to solve. Not that I think he's even trying to, but... Um, and then actually after we recorded, I said it again to one of you about something else. And I remember you just saying, I have no idea what you mean. And so it was after that, that I was like, maybe I should check what this word means. <laughs> and I realized I was just totally misusing it on a similar note. I also said pocket universe a couple times when talking about, um, football players being the only people who could appreciate star Wars in some weird other universe. I should have said parallel universe. Pocket universe is something different. Maybe Dustin knows. Yeah. About those. I just assumed you were talking about a pocket universe, but, <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah, I definitely meant parallel or alternate okay. pocket is something different that I, I don't know why I was saying that. Yeah. Um, but that's enough about that. Um, dark trailer tower, dark, dark, dark trailer. <laughs> <laughs> the Dark Tower trailer came out. I don't know if we really have time to talk about that. That's a bummer because that was the one I really wanted to talk about. But. Okay, what do you got? Um, I just wanted to ask Matthew, am I going to have to read the whole series before I see this movie? I think you won't have... Two things. I think they're probably doing it so that you don't have to necessarily, but if you follow too much of the conversation about it, you'll be confused. So maybe if you just don't pay attention to anything and go in and watch it, you can find it accessible. Um, so it's not going to ruin the rest of the series for me if I watch the movie. I don't have not seen the movie, so I could neither confirm well, you, nor... Deny. You've been following it, so I didn't know if... I don't you think knew. it will, but I would. I could see it and try to confirm that later when it is out um also i have at which point it would be way too late to start trying to read them well if i was going to see it in theaters also dustin you might not want to read them (laughs) why not um i've read the first three this isn't too much of a spoiler you hate spiders right yes but i like killing them uh how there's just a spiders in books are not real I'm not, I'm not going to be like creeped out by that. 
I just feel spiders are more of a hate that I have. It's not like a fear. Okay, so just anymore. Well, I'll just put a trigger warning on like book six onward. <laughs> okay, thanks. To answer your question about what it's going to cover in terms of overlap with the books, um, where is this? You said one. Well, I think you said like one four set or one three seven and four point five. I'm trying to find the list because. Um, there was actually a list somewhere in our text messages. No, in the Wikipedia article, I thought, but now I can't find it. I'm going to look in our text messages. While he's looking, I could just comment on how weird of a series it is because the writing of it spans it, the main seven books, like 25 years in between one, three, four point no, no, five and up... end of seven. Oh, you found it. One, yeah. three. Wait, what'd you say? One, three, four point one, three, four point five. End of seven. Okay, so... I think that's what I said a minute ago, in different order. Yeah, and 4.5 is book eight, but chronologically between four and five, from my understanding. I've only read the first book, so if you've read the first three... four is a flashback to his time in Gilead, isn't it? Um, In Magis, or Mahis, I'm not oh. sure how it's spelled or pronounced. Okay. But it's it, a young, like, he he's a kid, essentially, yeah. And I think 4.5 is shorter it is shorter okay so if you've already had the first three i think you can definitely cover four and 4.5 before the movie comes out maybe not worry about book seven. Oh wait 4.5 is actually the an eighth book yes that yeah. takes place oh i thought yeah. you were just saying like the half like half of never mind no no <laughs> time what i i see what you mean and this is why it bugs me when people yeah, it, it can get tricky when people start trying to number things that way. Um, but yeah, it is a book that was published eighth. So, like a decade after the last book. So that extends the timeline of when these are being published even more. Because I think The Gunslinger came out in like 70. If I am not misremembering that. And then you had the like next couple trickle out before like wizarding glass the fourth one came out in like 96 and then five six and seven all came out like 2004 2005 yeah i remember seeing wolves of the kala in bookstores and hardcover mm -hmm. he essentially wrote the lat like he almost got killed in an accident and then writes about how he took that as a sign from god that he needed to finish his magnum opus which was the dark tower to instead of just like letting it linger. So then he went ahead and wrote the last three books he'd been planning. Hmm. I have only read the first book and then I stopped because of the sheer page commitment. It is a lot. And there were too many other things I wanted to read, but now I have put all of these on hold with the library so that I can get up to speed. From my experience, they move pretty quickly though. Which one are you on? Okay. Like, well, I'm, I need to read Wizard and Glass, but I haven't had time to read for pleasure, really. Um, I remember I checked out, oh, uh, not drawing, what's the third one called? Uh, the Wastelands. The Waste, I, I checked out The Wastelands from the library, and it's pretty thick, but I, it gets, it, it flows quickly, and you want to read a lot. So. That one, or the Gunslinger, was published in eighty two. Oh, it was. Okay. It was a, a something that 
I think he wrote episodically and then collected it all into one book. Oh, maybe that was it. Oh, yeah. Uh, Serial, is that what you call it? Published between 78 and 81. Okay, so I was misremembering the year. It's still a, a over a long span of time, was more my point. Okay, so questions answered. Yeah, I think. I'm still trying to decide whether I'm going to see it or not. I mean, I want to see it. My, th- I'm just afraid to see it. I, I guess. have an open question. Like I, when I read it initially, my thought was, I don't know if you could make a movie out of this successfully, and I still don't know the answer to that question. So, yeah, <laughs> you might not. It might not be a bad thing to not see it. I don't know. Yeah. So arrival. Have we arrived to that topic? Just kidding. we refuse to acknowledge your joke (laughs) um we're going to talk about arrival a movie that we've been wanting to talk about for a while um but we are just now getting around to it would one of you guys care to summarize the film for those who haven't seen it okay so the pre-spoiler summary yes the pre-spoiler summary i would say it is a science fiction movie it is not an action movie, as many science fiction movies are. This is more in the tradition of Contact or 2001. Um, it is about aliens coming to Earth and the story of a linguist who is recruited by the government to help communicate with the aliens. And her mathematician sidekick. And her mathematician physics physicist sidekick theoretical physicist her theoretical physicist sidekick played by hawkeye yeah (laughs) it's this is a movie about lois lane and hawkeye talking to aliens (laughs) (laughs) um it is not at all like independence day much to the chagrin of the angry disappointed people who left the theater next to me um wow <laughs> so just get your expectations straight before watching this it's not independence day but it is very good did you want to mention yeah. saw Gerrera in it saw Gerrera is is in it yeah you're right oh yeah he didn't have crazy hair i was just thinking he's not in this oh wait yes it's still there <laughs> waiting <laughs> so why for this is for the listener who hasn't seen the movie arrival so we're we're not going to spoil it for you. You can keep listening. Right. Why should they watch this movie? Do you like good acting? Is a question and if the answer is yes, that alone based on the performance of Amy Adams should be would be one reason to see it, I would feel. Um the soundtrack mm. and the visuals are both also very well done. The sound design period in there i think yeah the sound design period um and the way the music direction tied in seamlessly with the story that was being told it's all very artfully done to quote a certain grand admiral um what was i saying before i got stuck on a star wars quote um so if you're if it is more of a intellectual science fiction movie rather than action so if you're looking for something a little more thoughtful this is it that doesn't mean and it's sci-fi for smart people what that doesn't mean it's sci-fi only for smart people 
No, it just means, uh, would you care to elaborate on that? Well, when I, I would be afraid of a person thinking, oh, it's intellectual sci-fi. They're going to be talking about theoretical physics and I don't want to go to a documentary. I want to watch a movie. Well, I was about to add something else that I think would mitigate that. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I was going to say, so it does have stuff there for people who want to think about their science fiction, but if you're not as into that, it also has a very human element to it and a very human story that I didn't expect going in. And I'm not going to say any more about it, but if you like stories about people and relationships and such, not, not like romance, but just like actual relationships or whatever, um, I think it also delivers in that area. Yeah, it was one of the more effectively moving human relationship stories that I've seen as of late. And it was able to do that precisely because it was couching something so mundane inside of something so fantastic. And it kind of succeeded on it. It would succeed on its own merits, but it was especially heightened by the contrast with that. Right. And so it has a story that I think would appeal to those who want to go see like just a straight up drama about a normal family, for instance. Um, it, it has that sort of drama in it, but um, just couched in this other stuff. But again, I really don't want to go any deeper on what that entails. Oh, right. Yeah. One of the things that when sci-fi, hmm, hold on. How do I want to say this? Sci-fi is at its best when it is revealing something about human nature. And this movie, it, it tries to do that, I guess. That's what it's speaking at. I would agree. Yeah. And a lot of times people are kind of opposed. I, I mean, <laughs> we're preaching to the choir, so... Um, I don't think we have to convince anybody who's listening to this about the value of science fiction, but um, just since we're kind of talking in about our thoughts on it, um, a lot of people kind of dismiss science fiction because they think it's all just like little green men and laser guns or whatever. But um, like Dustin said, the reason that science fiction is interesting to me personally is because it tells us about human nature. Um, but you guys who are listening probably know that. Or you just really like laser guns, which is also fine. <laughs> or laser swords. Or yeah. laser swords. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, Those are fun, yeah. I would like to throw out as a point that I really also liked, uh, kind of the opposite end of the spectrum from the human relationship dynamics. The aliens in this were thoroughly alien. And by that I mean, when you go into something like no offense to it as a franchise star trek very the aliens are kind of and some of that's just budget issues but are kind of very humanoid they're always humanoid shaped um they tend to focus on something that's an aspect of human culture already and it, it they can again that's kind of using it on their end to do the thematic stuff they want to do which it's not really a criticism there but comparing it just like in our biggest sci-fi franchises they tend to have very human aliens here the alien designs are 
utterly non-human and even trying to parse out communication with them is utterly non-human. Like that's kind of the focus of the movie. And I enjoyed um, that. I don't know. That was refreshing. As the probably least Star Trek fan here, I do want to say in defense of Star Trek, a lot of that comes out of its origins being a little bit older, like 60s TV budget by necessity. A lot of their aliens had to be humanoid and obviously people in costumes. But even in the original series, they had some aliens that were, for instance, a sentient rock or didn't they have some that were just like beings of pure energy? Yes. And different stuff like that. So they, they did what they could with their budget, but, um, I would definitely agree with Matthew that this does an exceptional job of making something very foreign to us and even using that element of the linguistics involved to help illustrate how alien these aliens really are. Yeah. And I mean, it's not an issue that you only see in Star Trek. Um, no, you see it in, in Star Wars. You see it in Star Wars. I mean, you even see it like in Mass Effect to a degree. Although the most enjoyable alien species there are the ones that are the least human. One of the things that most intrigued me about this movie was that right from the first viewing of the trailer, I could tell that this was going to be focusing on trying to communicate with the alien creatures that arrived on earth. And that is a facet of alien movies that is never really broached, or at least not that I've seen. There's always some kind of technology or miraculously we are able to communicate with these creatures from another planet. Um, and this movie is dealing with, how do we communicate with something so alien, something that is not like us, that doesn't come from our planet or our imaginations? Um, which, I mean, I guess they come from our imaginations. But it was a a unique story that I had often wondered about um, when thinking, well, what if we do make contact with aliens uh, Anyway, it's it was an intriguing idea, and uh, so I was very much anticipating this movie because of that different approach to an alien movie. So that's uh, another plus for why someone should watch this movie if they haven't already. It's just good. <laughs> I'm not sure that's the best convincing argument. Like, look, it's just good, man. It's good. It's good. Well, why do people watch um, Citizen Kane or... I don't know. I'm not... This, I'm Obligation. I, I think there's just a, <laughs> a cultural sense of what are good movies, and you watch those good movies like The Godfather or... Citizen Kane or Forrest Gump or I don't know. We have, uh, yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> Never mind. I see what you're. No, I, I see what you're going there. I was just making a. It's not a very convincing argument to tell someone like why should you watch this? It's good. Just it's a good movie. 
I guess actually for some people that is a convincing argument. Never mind. I watched Citizen Kane so that I could understand a Peanuts comic. <laughs> oh, man. It didn't actually <laughs> help. It didn't help. <laughs> no. It wasn't about a sled or anything. Nope. There were very few canes in this movie. One star. <laughs> <laughs> Where exactly are all the wolves? <laughs> No, I'm going to have to look up that Peanuts comic just so people know I'm serious. Yeah, I'm curious about why. I'll, I'll see if I can put it in the show notes. I, I, I would like to know why that made you watch that specific movie. So. They just, um, I think Linus is watching it on TV or something. And Lucy says something about it. I don't really remember. <laughs> I just remember it didn't make any sense to me. I think the joke is just that it's been on TV way too much. but I, Citizen Kane? Yeah. I've, I don't think I've ever seen it on TV. It's an old strip. Gotcha. Um, anyway, that's yeah. really neither here nor anywhere. So, spoilers ahead for those of you who haven't seen it. We're going to talk more li- libaciously. More what? Isn't that a word? Libaceous? Isn't that like something about drinks? It might like be. Like libations but... would be drinks. Okay, hold on. I need to look this up. I was just thinking, like, free, loose. With lots of celebratory drinking. Yes, we are. No, we're not. Sorry, I wanted to save you from uh, an incontrovertible problem like I had last week. (laughs) (laughs) Or an inscrutable one. I can't. How do you spell libations? I don't, I'm not even seeing it. I'm seeing like, my mama always said, if you can't spell a word, don't you use it. I'm seeing libation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now I, I looked up libation. Hold on. I probably just made it up, made it up then. Oh, you're right. It is Urban Dictionary. It is a drink poured out as an offering to a deity. Oh man, this isn't anything like, <laughs> this is my incontrovertible. <laughs> <laughs> I I can't believe I didn't realize the little preview I was looking at was from Urban Dictionary. I need to pay more attention to where my <laughs> definitions are coming from. <laughs> We're going to f- speak more freely. <laughs> oh, man. Is this the show? I don't know. You're the editor. <laughs> so what did you like about the movie? Are we in spoiler town? Yeah, spoiler, spoiler city. Where the spoilers are pretty. I hate Guns N' Roses. I don't know why I made a reference. Okay, so what did you guys like about the movie? Spoilers for the movie Arrival. Wall. If you haven't watched it, stop listening. And just on that note, if anybody's thinking, oh, I'll just go ahead and listen, even though I haven't seen it yet, I just want to say... I have read the short story now, and this is one situation where I'm really glad I saw the movie even before reading the source material, because I think the movie is better if you do not know completely what to expect. Oh, yeah, that's good. I guess we should have mentioned that it was based on a short story. Yes. Story of your life. Uh, So now that we are firmly in Spoiler Town, yes, it's based on a short story called Story of Your Life from the collection Stories of Your Life and Others. 
Um, have either of you read it? No, I haven't. No. Okay. Um, I actually read it today. Uh, finally got it from the library. And is it that short? It is short. Yeah. It's like 50 pages. Um, I know that the daughter dies differently. Yes. So I, what I was going to say is I will have a couple things to say about that, but I'm going to hold all of those comments for the very end so that if anybody wants to not get spoilers specifically for the short story, then they can do that if they have seen the movie, but haven't read the short story yet. So I will save those thoughts for the end. I thought it was kind of cool to see Jeremy Renner in a role that he was not holding a gun at any point in the movie or some kind of weapon to kill people with. His weapon was theoretical physics. But he didn't kill people with theoretical physics. <laughs> but theoretical physics has killed people. Have Has. Only when it's become experimental physics. <laughs> True, but the experimental physics would have been nowhere without the theoretical physics. Right. I liked that the movie created a sense of disorientation that I think simulated what was being experienced by the main character. Yeah. Do you want to expound on that? Yeah. So having no idea really what was going to happen in this movie beyond the first contact linguistics angle, I didn't know that there was going to be any sort of time related plot, um, not time travel per se, but, um, the stuff about the perception of time and the experience of time, I I had no idea that was going to be there. And so I thought that it was opening with a flashback when she was talking about her daughter. Um, and I, at first I thought that this was all happening years after she had had a daughter. Um, and even that's even kind of um, reinforced when she says something like somebody uh, Hawkeye asks if she is seeing anybody, I think. And she says like, not for a long time or something. And it makes it sound like, Oh, she's referring like, Oh yeah, that was a long time ago. That stuff from the, the little uh, prelude there. Um, and they, I think that the filmmakers kind of set up that misconception intentionally and then later on, they keep having what seems to be flashbacks. And then, gosh, I don't even remember exactly when it is. But at some point, you realize that those aren't flashbacks. They're flash forwards. And then gradually, as it goes on, you realize um, what's going on in terms of how she's perceiving time. I've heard it said that the essence of comedy is misdirection. And it would seem, in this case, to apply to drama as well. Yes. So I didn't realize that the child had not yet happened until embarrassingly late in the movie. Um, and I think it's just because of how ingrained, <laughs> uh, I guess it's, you know, just our linear way of thinking of past, present, and then future. Um, I just was so set on these were flashbacks and, my brain was thinking these are going to tie in somehow 
somehow these memories are going to connect with what she's experiencing. Um, and I kept waiting for that to happen, but it never quite connected. They just seemed really tangential. Um, I thought it was going to be kind of like signs where it was setting up some breakthrough for her. Yeah. She was going to be like, Oh, I, now I understand everything that's happening with the aliens because of this, um, trauma from my past. Yeah. And it wasn't even (laughs) when she was in the ship talking to Costello, it wasn't even whenever Costello said that, uh, she sees the future or when she said, who is this child? Um, that confused me because I was like, wait, did they show a different child (laughs) that she, it's not her daughter. What I don't get. And, uh, whenever Costello said that something about her seeing the future, uh, I thought it was either referencing the fact that she had a premonition of the capsule coming down to get her and take her up or, that he was mis uh misusing the word future because of how it's kind of a learning experience and communication there are points in the movie when they misuse a word and i thought that was one of those times yeah so yeah i didn't get that it was they were not flashbacks until um they showed Jeremy Renner in one of them. <laughs> Ian, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to remember when it was that I realized what was going on. I'm not remembering exactly. Yeah. I realized that she was becoming unstuck when it has the thing where she remembers the term non-zero sum. Mm. I mean, that part, I think it was kind of a little more obvious, I guess. But I didn't necessarily know if it was before or after. Yeah. And when the when Hannah is making the clay creatures, and there's definitely a, a heptapod there, or something, a child's rendition of a heptapod, I thought, man, that's really weird that she made that creature before they even came. <laughs> and I, yeah, it was basically the end of the movie that I realized that those were premonitions. I think it was those drawings that I started to realize it was after. Mm. But I, I really don't know. Do you remember when you realized, Matthew? Um, uh, I went in with being completely spoiled on this, so it was not a... Oh, bummer. Um, Not as much as you would think. I actually found the experience of knowing what was going... This is going to be very meta... I found the experience of knowing what was going to happen to make it all the more powerful when it did happen. Well, whoa, that is pretty meta. (laughs) But but the thing is you can have that experience on the second viewing. Whereas if you're spoiled, then you don't get to have the unspoiled experience at all. I'm not arguing for or against the notion of spoilers. I'm just saying that's why it's a bummer. Cause I, I did watch it recently at home. Um, I only got to see it once in the theater, but I watched it a second time at home a couple weeks ago. And I noticed, like you said, that it was a very different experience 
because um, even even right at the beginning, um, realizing from the very beginning that she's talking to her daughter um, through time, um, it's yeah, it's just a very different experience. I would argue that it makes the that you're too stuck in your temporal structures, too filthy. You know <laughs> that <laughs> that it makes the ending very powerful. Like you, it's still powerful in its uh, the way it's presented, but I don't know. It gains a layer. Well, I I know what you mean, but my point is simply that that is easily had on the second viewing as well. I think it seems like you're, I I don't think that you're actually doing this, but it seems like you're arguing against his experience and he can't change the way he saw it. All I'm saying is it's a bummer to go and spoiled. Yeah. Matthew is coping with his spoiled viewing and you're trying to take that away from him. I mean, some people don't find spoilers, (laughs) I guess. I'm just saying it doesn't bother me in this context at all. Yeah. Okay. Did Matthew, knowing the outcome, did you experience any of that disorientation? Um, it would still be disorienting when they would jump time-wise, yeah. Okay. It was disorient, like the physical disorientation that happened in the movie when they would have to reacclimate themselves to the different physics of the ships. That still pulls you along in the same way. Okay. I had an interest, uh, a thing I wanted to bring up that is probably a short point that I liked um, they, and I'm pretty sure they name checked it in the movie, brought up the Sapir Warp thesis, which is, uh, it generally gets broad. It's strictly a linguistic thing, but it's one of those like kind of so broad reaching it spills out into a number of different courses. If you've been in pretty much anything gen ed in not anything in a lot of gen eds in college, because it comes out in like a public speaking class. It comes out in like some psych and social classes. But the Sapir Whorf thesis, I'm sure if you've seen the movie, they've mentioned it. But it's the idea that all language is um, is encoding how you experience the world. So like just if you have language, two languages that are structurally different in how they put things like just are naming things, structuring things, using verbs or whatever, that that filters and changes your perception of reality. So it this had the movie talked about that, and then they applied it to like the utmost possible degree <laughs> by yeah. saying it like literally can undo the way you are perceiving time. If you have a language that you can perceive that's different, I don't that would be probably where the stretch is, but it's a movie. It You can do what you want with it. Um, but I thought that that was a very, it was fun playing around with that idea. And I liked that they incorporated something that is a, an actual research thing in linguistics and has areas of study branching off of it. Yeah. That theory didn't seem very earth shattering to me. Is it not, con- it's not confirmed that that's the case? No, there's uh, people, They it's arguments of degree. Okay. Like, I think everyone would agree it happens. It's just a matter of, do you think it's minor or a major effect? I see. Okay. Because I was going to say, in my experience with um, cultural differences, I 
I know that culture uh, changes the way you experience or perceive the world. And culture is to a degree related to the language. Mm-hmm. And so it didn't seem like when she said that, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And I think it even happens within like, yeah, it doesn't surprise me that that would have a huge effect because it even within the same language, when you have isolated populations that use words and language differently, you get that effect. I remember hearing a story about some missionaries working with a remote tribe and the language that this tribe spoke had only present tense and they they did notice an effect on, um, so they only had present tense and the obvious effect of that is that they never talked about the past or the future. They only talked about what was going on in the moment really. And so they never really planned for the future at all. They just lived very much in the moment. And they also like when the missionaries came in, in their airplanes, the kids would build these really elaborate like stick models of the airplanes and stuff and be playing with them. But they would very quickly um, throw them aside. Like they wouldn't like keep the toys and maintain them or anything. They would like, as soon as the planes were gone, the toys would just kind of be left to rot Um, because the people really didn't, dwell on the past or on the future at all. Hmm. That's an interesting way of living. It's almost the opposite of the heptapod experience. Yeah. And I guess that kind of branches into something else that was, that I liked. It's like any other movie where they're having a language barrier, they might pay like lip service to like, Oh my gosh, it's so incredibly hard to translate a language. You don't even know. But then like the brilliant protagonist can, or translator or whatever can, jump the barrier it's like hacking in movies they're like there's seven thousand layers of encryption can you get it can you get past it i'm in like just (laughs) (laughs) it's a triptych of hive runes said to be uncrackable it'll be a few minutes said to be (laughs) three waves later (laughs) but yeah just the fact that they stuck with how difficult it would be and had someone who was very talented and had a level of insight into the whole process. Like even, even when they were getting it, they were still showing how difficult it was and that like, it was something that it felt real, like a realistic, it was maybe optimistic, but at least realistic optimism. I liked Forrest Whitaker's portrayal of the Colonel in this movie because he was, uh, he was kind of a gruff military commander, but he wasn't close-minded. Like, uh, for instance, in the scene when uh, Louise has the list of vocabulary words that she wants to start teaching the heptapods, he's looking over it and he says, these are all first-grade words or kindergarten words. Help me understand. And I liked that attitude of help me understand. And he takes that throughout the whole movie. It's not just like, I don't get it. This is stupid. We're doing it my way and shooting the heptapods out of the sky. 
And he he even said, I want you to understand that I have to report to these people and they're asking very different questions than what you guys. Right. And it's it's not necessarily him that is the one that's not understanding her position. And neither he nor any of his superiors are stupid. It's just they have very different priorities, very different ways of thinking about it, and very different areas of expertise. Yeah. But it's nice to see a character who has that perspective because the, I feel like too often in fictional portrayals, it's far easier to write a one-dimensional character who's like doesn't make any attempt at understanding things. And I feel like it's at least a 50-50 in real life. You're going to get people who try to understand, and then there are some people who just don't care about other people per- other people's perspectives. Yeah, and I think that it's easy in a movie to have a military commander that only wants to think in terms of violence. And it was refreshing to see, like I said earlier, of uh, Jeremy Brunner in a movie that isn't him shooting things. It was kind of refreshing to see a military commander that was willing to work with scientists and not be beholden to war and things like that. I was trying to think of what it would be like if this movie had had a one-dimensional thing, and I just imagined him saying, like, stop with these first-grade words. Ask them how many missiles it takes to kill them. Like, just... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It was really frustrating to be watching this, and my... I think the audience in general is supposed to be on the side of Louise and wanting to understand the heptapods and then seeing um, the like general Chang and the CIA guy that all they're wanting to know is why are they here? What like, are we going to have to shoot them down? And is this a war? And then when they cut off the communications to all the different countries, um, it was a frustrating experience to be watching that. And I don't know, that's kind of one of the, those human condition things that sci-fi is good about, uh, highlighting. And that's like our paranoia. And I guess like the fight or flight kind of reaction to danger um, it makes sense that we would be defensive if alien ships come out of the mist. But I hope that, you know, I wish that we didn't always resort to fighting. Kind of piggybacking off that, I liked that you had a, it's, I have a hard time even thinking of other movies that do it really well. Aliens in movie in American movies at least tend to just be a lazy stand-in for the other like you can't make an enemy that you need something that's politically correct for everyone to realize is the threat because if you're going to put a movie out globally you can't make the Chinese the villain or something because that movie's not going to play well in China and you're trying like so Hollywood movies now kind of like defaulted to aliens being like okay we can all agree these things are terrible and that they need to die like that type of thing. And so just like generically putting the whole sense of the enemy otherness 
just generically onto aliens. This was taking that same role of and saying it doesn't have to be an enemy, but you still had people responding to it like it could be. Like it it took a more nuanced approach to what the other is, and I liked that aspect of it. Most of my favorite science fiction takes a similar slant where the alien is used as a stand-in for the other for the purpose of exploring human nature, but that could be like uh, the prawns in District 9 or any of the various alien species in um, Ender's Game, whether it's the the Formics, the, the Piggies, or even the, the Descalada in the later books. Um, or the Rachni in Mass Effect is the same thing, but that's kind of like... Right. I mean, the Rachni is very much kind of a... The same thing, yeah. <laughs> riffing on the, the Ender stuff. But yeah, those are my favorite alien stories. And that's part... That's that's really the main reason I was interested in this to begin with, is that it was going... It looked like it was going to be one of those stories with the addition of the, the linguistic thing that I have not personally seen explored in that depth. Since you brought up Ender's Game, one of the things that sold me on purchasing this movie, because I didn't see it in theaters, uh, it's kind of weird. I introduced this trailer to both of you guys, but I was the last one to watch it. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's odd to me, or funny to me. Um, but one of the things that sold me on wanting to purchase it was when you described it as not so much Ender's Game as Speaker for the Dead or less Ender's Game, more Speaker for the Dead. And I was like, right. yes, I want to, I want to watch that movie. Yeah. Cause I mean, Speaker for the Dead really does have a lot of these similar issues of communication between cultures and for them, they think they have the linguistic aspect cracked and they're talking with these aliens all the time, but they don't realize that the things they're talking about are so different in ways that they don't even realize. Yeah. What did you guys think of the general Ching story arc at the end there? I didn't have any particularly strong feelings about the stuff with the general, um, I thought it was interesting to have some drama regarding the international response and to allow her to use her new perception of time to solve that. It does bring in a potential bootstrap paradox. Um, it didn't really bother me. It's I, like I said, I didn't have super strong feelings about it and it doesn't particularly bother me that it looks like a paradox. What's a bootstrap paradox? Bootstrap paradox is when something happens in the future that causes something in the past that is necessary for the thing in the future to happen. It's a chicken and an egg problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So she called him because she had his number because she had talked with him in the future. But the only reason she talks with him in the future is that she had called him in the past. And the only reason she knew what to say was because she had talked with him. But it's, there's no, basically 
the thing in the future caused the thing in the past that causes the thing in the future. Right. But it's really easy to not have it be a problem when you realize that the whole nature of causality is uh, a human construct that they're saying is bound up in our language in that movie. Yes, that nails it because you're, you're exactly right. That's why it doesn't bother me because it's not time travel. It's a flattening of time. Right. And there's not even like time travel would not make sense to them as a concept. Right. And I think that the reason it bugs some people is they view it as a movie about time travel and it's really not. Oh, I didn't realize that was a perception. Yeah. It's not time travel at all. <laughs> well, I'm I, the way when people talk about, no, I mean, I haven't necessarily heard people say those words, but when like I listen to the podcast where John Syracuse talks about how it doesn't make any sense, it sounds to me like he's saying he thinks it's basically he's thinking of it as time travel, mm. uh, whether he realizes it or not. Um, but like Matthew said, that's it's not issues of causality. It's the time is flattened, and so it's all happening at once, and so there is no causal relationship to worry about because it's all at once. Yeah. It's almost like uh, the way I, I thought of it is she's remembering something from the future. Right. Because she's experiencing it both ways. Like, yeah, like you're saying all at once. Right. Well, and that was kind of the whole point was that humanity needed that to take its next steps. And that was the gift. The right. uh, Pentapods were heptapods. Sorry. (laughs) I cut out two legs there. Oh, it's egregious, but uh, a quick, quick side question. That's, um, that was Abbott why? after the bomb. Why? What? The pentapod was Abbott after the bombs oh. went off. Oh, too soon, oh. man. <laughs> I have a, a quick question. Why heptapod and not septapod? I don't know. Other than they said Greek for seven. Okay. So if they're, they're going with Greek, I'm, I guess septopod would be Latin and Greek together. Oh, okay. That makes sense. What about Roman numerals? (laughs) Don't answer that. Um, (laughs) That is behind us. It's in the past. So we're experiencing it now. No. (laughs) (laughs) That's the joke. Um, uh, uh, Matthew, did you have any thoughts on the the general thing before Matthew and I said all that? <laughs> what? What? The general, like, what's the general the gen- thing? Like the time, tr- the, the the thing with the general, oh. the Chinese general. <laughs> <I> heard, <laughs> Not the, <laughs> the general thing. Yes, you come up with the most generic statement possible. The general thing. No, no, no. <laughs> The thing with the the Chinese official. Are you talking to Matthew or me? I'm t- <laughs> I don't even know anymore. <laughs> because you said, I'm asking Matthew, do you have you, any thoughts Dustin, before <laughs> you called me did Matthew? Did I say Matthew? Yes. I said Matthew at times. I meant Dustin. <laughs> Dustin, do you have, did you have any thoughts on the thing I, about the Chinese military <laughs> slash governmental official before <laughs> Matthew and I went on all of that stuff we said <laughs> i through the movie watch uh we 
the only interactions we get with General Cheng until the end of the movie is through uh, news clippets. Clippets? clippets. Is that a... <laughs> <laughs> That's a combination, a portmanteau of snippets and clips. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> clippets. <laughs> Some <laughs> news clippets of people talking about how he's finna fight the heptapods and stuff and such. And so he's like the symbol of the part of our humanity that wants to lash out in whenever we're afraid, lash out in violence. Um, and then it turns out that he is the most perceptive of what's happening of any of the people out there. And so it was kind of a, I mean, the plot takes you for a spin whenever you realize that the movie is happening in both directions at once. And it's kind of the same experience whenever you, through the whole movie, you're thinking this general chain guy is, um, closed minded. He's not willing to look as at the heptapods as anything other than an enemy. And then here he is the reason that, um, Louise is able to convince him not, not to attack and bring peace to the world and all that, uh, because he was perceptive of what was going on and realized that he needed to talk to her and explain these things. I, I thought it was a kind of, kind of a cool role reversal there. So, okay. Makes sense. Yeah. There's um, one very minor thing I disliked, and it has almost, it has to do with multimedia experience more so than the movie on its own merits. For anyone who has played or is familiar with Mass Effect, the heptapod design is unfortunately like the main antagonist uh, oh. group in Mass <laughs> Effect. So they're completely opposite in terms of their relationship with humanity. But at first it's like, oh man, these are like, I don't know, you spend a long time not liking that shape. Yeah. They're a lot smaller though, right? Oh yeah. They're definitely a lot smaller. It's just a, a general, my first impression on design was like, oh, that has not historically ended well. Yeah, I had forgotten about that connection, but that's a interesting point. Um, and yeah. a group that, just to explicitly say the name in Mass Effect, is the Reavers. Not to be confused with Reavers from the Firefly universe. And everything else. Reavers are just over... It's an overused name. <laughs> Probably Reaper is too, but... Also not to be confused with Reaver Vandals from Destiny. Or the Grim Reaper. Wait, what are they... Are they called Reavers or Reapers? Reapers. With a P. According to someone we watched with in college, Reefers. <laughs> <laughs> Who was that? I don't know if I would say. Oh, yeah, I guess. Ask that, me later. Duh. <laughs> I'll ask you later. No, I can't remember. Is it Reefers or Reapers? Reapers. From what? Mass Effect. Reap. R-E-A-P. Okay. Okay, I was I was mixing it up because the of, planets are ripe for harvest. Yeah. They are reaping them. Yeah, they're reaping the culminated developed species. Got it. 
spoilers. Uh, oh, yeah. A little bit, a little bit. That's such an old game. I'm sure there are people that... It is 10 years old this year. I'm sure nobody hasn't finished it. Yeah. <laughs> I finished Mass Effect. Just like everyone's finished Mass Effect 3 by now because it's five years old, right? Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, that's what I was talking about. <laughs> oh, you were talking about Mass Effect 3? I thought we were talking about Mass Effect. I'm in the trilogy. Oh, okay. Okay, that joke didn't work. Did you finish that yet, Trevor? No. Oh, okay. I thought you were just throwing shade on me. It's... No, I'm throwing shade on both of us. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> we didn't finish three yet. He's pitching an umbrella and you're both under the shade. Yeah. What a penumbra. <laughs> okay. I can't let us close out this show without talking about the morality question in this movie. Um, I know of one person who has multiple appearances on podcasts that thinks that Louise is a monster. I already called him out. Yes. Okay. So John Syracuse thinks that Louise is a monster. Uh, I was watching this with a friend recently um, that this person is not on this podcast. And after the movie ended, the first question that he asked was, was that really the moral thing to do? And I jumped all over him and I feel bad about that. But it was the first time I'd have a chance to talk about my thoughts on this topic with anyone. And he wasn't necessarily saying that he felt like it was immoral that she did that. It was just he was processing it. So, uh, yeah. What are your guys's? I don't want to. Well, maybe I should just go ahead and say your your thoughts. Okay, so uh, the podcaster said that he felt like it was immoral that she would have the child, even though no. Uh, have Hannah, even though she knew that Hannah would die of cancer, I'm assuming. It doesn't really say in the movie, but the, uh, a disease that could not be cured and could not be reversed. Uh, so it's not like she could have done something to not catch the disease, is what I mean by could not be reversed. Um, And I think that that is a mm, I, I I disagree with that perception greatly um, when I was watching this movie and realized that Hannah had not been born yet that it was these were things that she was sensing of the future and that whenever Ian asks her if she wants to make a baby and she says yes I thought that that was, it was showing that love is her love for Hannah and for their life together, however short it may have been, outweighed all of the pain that she experienced from losing a child early in life. And not only losing a child, but losing a marriage. And I thought that was a powerful message that love was, love won out over fear of pain. 
So you're saying it's better to have loved and to have lost than to have never loved at all? That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> and also, I am a father. I, if I did not, if I chose, or if I thought that it was immoral to bring a child into this world when I knew that the child would die, I would not have kids because I know that my children are going to die because all humans die. And there's a chance that my kids could die tragically. There's a chance that my kids could die before me, but that doesn't mean that I'm not going to have children. I'm not going to live my life in fear because the prospect of an untimely death is too much for me to bear. I don't, yeah, and I think it kind of, without people thinking about it, it can kind of boil down to what people regards, regard as more immoral. Is it immoral, more immoral to have a hand in bringing a being in that you know is doomed to a tragic end or to deny being because you know it's doomed to a tragic end and then i i would argue that we can't just judge hannah's life as tragic because it seemed and granted um louise is going to remember the good parts of their life together but it seemed like she had a wonderful life with her mother and she had a loving mother and a loving father. Um, and it's awfully, uh, short sighted, I guess, to view Hannah's life as tragic just because she died in her teens. Well, and you also have to cancer. look at it as if you no longer are bound by the strictures of time, if you're experiencing everything kind of as a free-flowing present death loses some of its power right i guess what i'm getting at is it bothers me to think of hannah's death as being somehow and the tragedy of her death which i mean it's tragic for a young person to die before they've lived out their years and experienced life but it's it bothers me to look at her life and say yep her death and the tragedy of it is definitely outweighs all of the good that she experienced and all of the good that her life brought about i would very much agree with dustin's take on this um that was pretty much my interpretation exactly at the end of the movie she is making a conscious choice to embrace that life with Hannah. Um, whatever she, she makes the choice to um, be a mother to Hannah, even though she knows how it's going to end. Um, and like Dustin said, she loves her enough to uh, take even just that short amount. Um, and, Anytime anybody has a child or enters a relationship or so many other things, we are opening up potential for pain um, and often guaranteeing it. Like, for instance, when somebody on a much smaller level, when somebody gets a pet, 
if you get a dog, you are virtually guaranteed the dog is going to die before you and it's going to be extremely painful, but you still want to have a dog for a little while um, and to to be a good owner for that dog as well. So it's And the dog wants to be with you. Yeah, and so it's um, a relationship that is beneficial for everybody involved and fulfilling um, regardless of the way that it ends. And I think you would say that the, I don't know, there's probably a larger lesson that the, I think, I guess it's kind of what Dustin already said, actually, that having the fear of an ending is no reason to not never begin. Exactly. I guess uh, to boil down the ethic that was espoused by Syracuse would be avoiding fear or not avoiding fear avoiding pain whereas the ethic that the movie is proposing is embracing love right and i think that that's that is by far a better ethic so was there anything about the movie that bothered either of you i already talked about the reaper thing (laughs) dustin i don't know that's a funny thing to be bothered by I understand it, but I'm. I it's laugh. a very minor. Like it, I. The yeah. problem is, I. I don't know. I like the movie overall, and that's probably as much of a criticism as I could levy at it. Yeah. Um. The visual effects of her in the the chamber with the with uh, Costello was a little bit. Mm, it was a little odd, I guess, but that is a super minor. Like, I'd, I wouldn't even say that I disliked it. It was just, it's odd to watch, I guess. Okay. But it it makes sense at the same time because these huge creatures are floating around and it's lit differently and it's, it's alien. So, yeah. so no, I don't really have... <laughs> criticism on that note um in that particular scene it seemed like the heptapod was a lot taller than i had realized before there's like a whole big thing on top that like i hadn't noticed and it's it was it was kind of weird realizing i thought it was like kind of this much smaller squid kind of thing and then suddenly it's got like this giant thing on top and i'm like what is happening but maybe that's almost a visual metaphor for the closer you're getting to them, the more you're seeing of them as a species. Like it's almost uh, standing in for her perception of the language and how it's making more things apparent. Maybe. And she's beyond a screen of, yeah, I don't know. There's yeah. cinematography stuff they're doing with it there too. The one thing that really bugged me about the movie was the fact that uh, Hawkeye leaves. Um, And not even the fact that he left, but that he left because he knew that Hannah was going to get sick and die. Um, And I guess there was a certain realism to it because bad stuff like that does happen. But... um, it was it was not pleasant thinking about the fact that he 
he realizes his daughter has limited time and so he's going to leave and miss it like come on man like that that wasn't the reason he left the reason he left was he was furious at louise right okay so yeah yeah he was um, like syracusa <laughs> in this movie yeah so he yeah he was he left because of the way that it was communicated i guess or the fact that she knew so I don't I don't know if it was because she hadn't told him earlier or because she did tell him or because he thought that she should have not married him and had a kid like I don't I don't know exactly what the reason was but they just said something like he thought she made the wrong choice. Okay. Right. So the way I interpret that is she eventually told him that Hannah was going to die and he was he felt like they shouldn't have even had a kid that Louise hoodwinked him into this. I could see it like put yourself in that perspective. And like, I'm not saying I would necessarily make the same choice, but I can understand the feeling of betrayal he probably had in that. I don't know, like what would uh, say you were you, you and your, uh, spouse bought a house and then 10 years into it the your spouse says oh by the way um i knew this was built on top of a sinkhole and it is going to cave into the sinkhole at some point (laughs) (laughs) like you i I don't know i could see that being a reaction just like well i'm divorcing (laughs) i don't know (laughs) like uh, that's probably a poor metaphor yeah. Oh, exceptionally. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I mean, you get to choose your house. You don't get to choose your kids. No, right? I. But I know. I'm just saying, if it, if you feel, <laughs> but there's no way to. Uh, I I think you are aware of how inadequate the metaphor is, yes. so I'm not going to <laughs> push the point. Just if you feel um, like you're someone who's close to you with a withheld critical information from you in order to get to the outcome they wanted without consulting you that immediately yeah. puts you in a feeling where you like you're not an equal partner you've like i don't know i yeah and i'm not saying it was bad storytelling or unrealistic or anything um more that it was just extremely unpleasant i would agree with that wholeheartedly yeah i wish he yeah, yeah if i had but see, I would ride happy. I don't want a sad ending. <laughs> yeah. And then the heptapods came back and cured Hannah. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> and they flew through space together in their space. No, I don't That would be so stupid. <laughs> Hannah and the heptapods will return in Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 3. <laughs> <laughs> Hannah and the heptapods, new band name, call it. That's actually a pretty good one. Oh, that's a... Yeah. I like that a lot. Okay. Um... Do you guys want to talk at all about the short story? Yeah, I'd like to hear about it. At least briefly. Okay. Do you mind hearing spoilerish stuff about how it's different? No. Honestly, I don't think I will read it. Okay. I might read it. Okay. Um, well, uh, okay, so yeah, it differs in a few ways. The most significant is that the daughter dies differently. So rather than dying at about like 16 from cancer, she dies at 25 in a mountain climbing accident. And that 
raises a whole host of other questions because it's like, man, if you knew she was going to die in a mountain climbing accident, why couldn't you like get her not to go on that trip or something? Or I don't know. It feels a lot more preventable and uh, it just, it just makes it a lot more confusing in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, also 25 instead of 16. Um, I don't know if that would cross Syracuse's threshold for what could be considered a full life or not. <laughs> um, I don't really care, I guess, either way. Uh, it's pretty much the same. Um, she still chose <laughs> to have the kid and be a loving mother. Mm -hmm. Um, there were some very, uh, plenty of minor differences, of course, overall, very good adaptation. I'm probably like the movie a little bit better overall, um, just cause it's so well done. The book does go into some physics and linguistics stuff that's not in the movies. Oh boy. Well, just like how Jurassic Park, the movie doesn't spend so much time trying to talk about nonlinear mathematics. Uh, yeah. So what the kind of the main point in the, in the book about the physics is they talk about the physicists keep trying to talk about mathematics with the aliens and not getting anywhere, trying the simple stuff. And then they go to some things they think are more complicated and they have a breakthrough. And it's when they're talking about the refraction of light that they have their first big breakthrough and they didn't talk about it first because they thought the math was too complicated, but the concept made a lot of sense to the heptapods because of the, uh, the principle of least time. Mm -hmm. Is that something you're familiar with Dustin? Um, I think that's what they called it. It's I'm not familiar with the name, but I understand what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. The idea that the light takes the quickest path between two points when it refracts, um, like when it goes into water, right. For instance, um, it'll take the quickest path. Um, but the math to express that is, I guess, involves calculus and the human inclination is to talk about the light starting at one point And then what happens at the moment that it hits the water and then what happens after that? But the heptapods, because they are experiencing it in a nonlinear fashion, they know the starting point and the ending point, and it's a lot easier to describe what happens in between. Hmm. Yeah. So they, they kind of use that to make the breakthrough of how their perception of time is different. Um, anyway, it, I'm, I'm sure I'm explaining it poorly, but um, it goes into a lot more with the physics, I think. And do they talk about entropy and how it relates to time perception? No. Okay. They did not. The reason I ask is because the author talked about that in one of the bonus material interviews. And so I didn't know if that played into the story or not. For any interested listeners, the actual uh, title of the thing we're talking about with least time is Fermat's Principle. That's the name. I was just flipping through the book trying to find that Fermat's principle. They talk about that a lot. Matthew, did you um, just know that or did you look it up? Um, I had to look up the name. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Fermat's principle of least time. I was flipping looking for that. Um, and you were correct. Um, 
so they they kind of make the breakthrough with that. Um, Louise doesn't tell anybody what's going on. There's even a part where she's interacting with another linguist, and there's kind of an unspoken understanding that both of them are experiencing this, but they don't even talk about it with each other. Um, and so that plays into how she discusses whether this becomes a question of free will or predetermination. Um, and she basically explains, and I'm, I'm not going to go into all of it because if you want it, you can read the short story, but she kind of goes into how the fact that you know what's going to happen doesn't determine what's going to happen. It's, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. Which is why she doesn't stop her daughter from going on the... Right. It's, yeah, she doesn't stop anything from happening. Um, and in the case of the book, doesn't even necessarily... Well, actually, I guess she does still make the choice, even though she knows what's going to happen. But her she doesn't make any of her decisions because she knows she has to or because she's locked in by knowing or even because she's choosing in spite of knowing it's there's no cause there's no causal relationship between the fact that she knows and what she's doing if that makes any sense it simply is what she's doing right it, and she knows but that's just how it is essentially everything has just happened already and she's right. perceived the whole story at once right rather than uh the whole idea of us of telling the daughter not to go on the hiking trip or whatever mountain climbing trip is still grounded in our linear thinking. I think the author also uses more stages of, I don't know if the child is actually named in this, but I'll just say Hannah. They use more stages of Hannah's development as a way of illustrating the differences between heptapod and human perception. So, for instance, there's a, a passage where it talks about how, as a baby, everything is either completely wonderful or completely awful. And in the bad moments, everything is bad and will always be bad. And then in the good moments, everything is good and will always be good. And an adult human looking at that must be similar to how a heptapod sees the human perception of time. It's... Hmm. So it, it uses the different stages of human development to even talk about those differences in how time is perceived. Interesting. Neat. Um, she also spends a lot more time practicing writing the language, um, which was kind of distilled in the movie, in the scene where she goes into the ship with Costello. In the in the short story, that is instead her just like staying up late, practicing writing the language and in the movie, they kind of just pop the words into existence all at once. In the in the book, it's described more as sort of a calligraphy where um, they are actually writing it. They're not necessarily just inking it in the air. Um, but the way that they are executing the calligraphy, it's clear that they know the entire sentence from the moment they start because there are lines that go through the entire um I can't remember the word for the thing. Glyph? But they're line. What? Like a glyph? Nah, not a glyph. Um, I, I, I'm reluctant to use the word because she talks about some words that are not correct for these things. They're not pictograms. They're not um, 
don't remember the word, but anyway, um, when they're writing their language, they, they're drawing lines through the whole thing that they could only do by knowing how the whole thing is going to be in the end. Um, and so as she perfects that craft of essentially writing the heptapod calligraphy, it's through the process of writing it that she begins to perceive time differently. In the movie, did they make a clear distinction between the written and spoken languages? They said that what a heptapod says doesn't necessarily match up with what a heptapod writes. Okay. That's another thing that is expanded more on in the short story. And again, I don't need to explain it all, but um, they talk about heptapod A is the spoken language, heptapod B is the written language. That's why one of the tracks on the soundtrack is called heptapod B. Oh, nice. Um, when I was looking at the soundtrack, I thought they were just saying like Costello. I thought they were talking about like names for the heptapods before yeah. they dubbed them Abbott and Costello. Um, but that was actually the term for the written language. And the written language is the one that is far more important than the spoken language. Cause the spoken language is by necessity linear mm-hmm. and is described as a poor substitute for the written language. Hmm. That's usually the opposite way around, but right. Cause we get, we get a lot of meaning through inflection and things like that. Body language that are harder to capture in writing. And if you are trying to capture them in writing, you have to provide a lot of other stuff around what you're saying to explain that. But in the heptapod language, it's actually the, the written language that's more complete. That has a lot of interesting implications for heptapod evolution that I don't think we have time to dive into. Yet, but... <laughs> Can we talk about the evolution of a fictional species? No, like what that would mean for how they developed as a species and stuff. I don't know. Something... It's interesting to me. <laughs> I think that is also discussed, for what it's worth. Okay. The I will say, the short story was good, and I'm pretty sure this collection that it's in, even though these stories are all by the same guy, I think there are like two or three Hugo winners in this collection, so oh. it's probably <laughs> worth checking out. Something that I wasn't... I didn't even think of until, I don't know, just when you were talking about the heptapod writing, is that the way they do it i don't know if this is intentional or not one of the predominant exercises in zen buddhism is to draw um a circle spontaneously in one burst but you don't close the circle so it's like a 90 to 95 percent complete circle that roughly speaking looks like how the heptapod language right or the length heptapod writing does and it has a lot to do with like notions of emptiness, finding fullness and in incompleteness. Like there's just stuff like that. You, it's like sometimes viewed as a symbol of infinity because you've got a circle that's going on, but is open to let everything else in and also to be empty. So there's nothing, I don't know. It's bound up with Buddhism and stuff, but just the, I don't know. I would wonder if the writer drew anything from that. Because it's It's a very, it's probably like the most prominent symbol associated with Zen Buddhism. She doesn't, or I keep saying she, the author is a man. Um, The character is a woman Um, and it's told from her perspective. So I guess that's why I keep saying she, Um, she doesn't mention that she does mention Arabic calligraphy, 
and that she's seen similar intricacies in in Arabic calligraphy, but it's always carefully planned out beforehand and executed by an expert, whereas this is just done in an instant by just a, a normal heptapod. It would seem to be almost a blending of those two then like it's yeah maybe it's insanely detailed calligraphy but done in a flash one stroke moment and like very similar to how they do it zen wise i'm i was just i'd be interested if the author talked about that being a thing at all anywhere do either of you know what they were getting at with the stuff about the sanskrit word for war i just took it as uh louise's way of giving the colonel a taste into how linguists can differ in their interpretation of a language and giving him an option of who to choose. Can you remind me of the context of that? Okay, so uh, the colonel came to her with the recording of the heptapod speaking and wanted her to come, or wanted her to translate it right there, uh, which is ludicrous. Yeah. And then she, they're leaving. She asks if he's going to Berkeley to talk to this other linguist. And he said that he was. And she said, ask him what this uh, Sanskrit word for war means. And then later they come in the chopper and he gets out of the the helicopter and he said, a disagreement. Uh, What do you say? And she said, a desire for more cows. And he says, get in the chopper. <laughs> and that's, it's not really explained any further. So this is just kind of my guess as to what's going on. But yeah, I, I think it's giving him the option of choosing whose interpretation style he would like to go with. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Have either of you guys rented it in physical copy? I bought it on iTunes. Yeah, I have it. Does it come with the bonus features? Presumably. I haven't watched them yet. Okay. I think it did. I have really enjoyed watching the few that I've watched, especially the interview with the director. This was his first time directing sci-fi, and I thought that he had some interesting comments on the genre in general. So I thought you guys would like would enjoy that. On science fiction in general? Uh, yeah. Okay. Like his his view of sci-fi going into making the movie and his view of sci-fi coming out was interesting. Um, and there there's just other... Like the way they sound engineered the heptapods is kind of cool. Uh, they were very intentional about using only natural sounds throughout the whole movie for like when the ships are moving, it's rock sliding and um, the heptapods are recordings of this bird in New Zealand that they, I mean, they obviously um, manipulated it digitally, but all of the original sounds are natural rather than digital creations. Okay. There's also a really interesting podcast episode from song exploder about the track heptapod b um 
that talks about how they developed the music and how that relates. Uh, they didn't just write the music as like, you know, we're going to do this cool or orchestral score or whatever. It is very much related to the story that's being told and the, um, the aliens and the, the language and everything ties into it. So I will also link that in the show notes. Thanks. I was genu- genuinely surprised by how much I liked this movie and it kind of restored my faith in Hollywood and studios as a structure that like aren't totally, I don't know, not necessarily going to turn out, turn out the same tired ideas and that they are willing to try new things that are interesting store. I don't know. I, I was not expecting it to be this engaging or good. They didn't just blow up New York again because they know that it sells tickets. It, it all took place in, or most of it took place in Montana in a field in Montana. There's like, that's, that's, that doesn't happen in movies. <laughs> yeah. These days. Um, yeah, this is kind of in in a tradition of movies that I would say includes stuff like uh, Contact, 2001, some would say Interstellar, and I, did you guys like Interstellar? I did. You did? Okay. Matthew? It was... <laughs> we saw this together. <laughs> I And I'm asking for your current assessment. Um, It was all right. It was not... I liked the commitment to some of the harder harshness of relativity. I wanted to like Interstellar so much more than I actually did. Um, I'm not going to go too far into that, but um, this, I would say, was the opposite, where I expected to love it and liked it even more than I expected. So um, five thumbs up. <laughs> I give it seven thumbs I give it seven tentacles all the in across time itself <laughs> well I think that covers everything um, if you want to find us online we're at betterworlds.net the show notes for this episode will be betterworlds.net slash podcast slash 11 we're also on twitter at betterworldsnet and we have a Slack group that you can join. If you want to join that, shoot us an email at feedback at betterworlds.net and we will send you an invite. Thanks for listening. Go then. Axel Rose has quite possibly the worst voice I've ever heard. It is nails on chalkboard bad. As far as from a singer that has a record deal, I've heard worse voices, I guess. Oh, no. Oh, no, what? What was it sound? I don't know. I didn't hear a sound. Was it? I heard a sound. What sound? Was it the sound of, oh, Matthew's gone. Hey, Matthew. Matthew? I, yes. I literally just said, oh, Matthew's gone, and then it dinged that you were back. Oh. Matthew joined. Did you raise, it, rage leave because I said that I disliked Axl Rose? <laughs> <laughs>
I didn't even hear you say anything. <laughs> okay. I thought you were a closet Guns N' Roses fan. I, You guys both started flanging like crazy, and then it kicked Dustin, and I just decided to leave and rejoin. What is flanging? Can you give us a definition of that? That weird, like, I'm just... robot. I'm probably using it incorrectly. It's that weird robot electronic effect that happens to I... Is that actually a word? It's a guitar pedal that sounds like that, so I would say yes. Dang it, flanging is a word. But it's... Yeah, okay. You're doing it right now. But libaceous is not. Are we cutting the libaceous stuff? You're both doing it like crazy, and I can't hear anything you're saying. <laughs> We're going to carry on without him. No. <laughs> Take me down to the spoiler city. <laughs> this is not good. <laughs> I hear Dustin chuckles oh. bits and pieces like raining down in an electronic symphony. <laughs> Did Matthew say something? Is it a Shostakovich symphony? <laughs> bits of Trevor peppered in, maybe offering some sort of elucidating comment, but it's all terrible. Did he just leave again? Yeah. <sighs> Wait, there that was real. I heard a sigh. Do you know who Shostakovich is? This is this is not going well. We're I feel like we're like forty five minutes farther than we should be for where we are in the conversation. Oh man. This is gonna be a short episode after you cut out all the libaceous mumbo jumbo. You guys have leveled out for me now, so it's I can hear what you're saying. So Trevor, what did you like about the movie? <laughs> I liked that Matthew introduced me to it. <laughs> <laughs> I liked that too. <laughs> Good old Matthew. <laughs> I like how Trevor has a spotless memory of everything. Really. Literally the best part of the movie. <laughs> Every, everyone should see it because Matthew is introducing them to it. I miss Matthew. <laughs> R.I.P. in peace. <laughs> I am the ghost of oh. a rival past come to educate you all. Wait, can you hear me? You're going to get me in a coughing fit. I don't know if you could hear that. I was kind of far away from them. I've been going through a lot of cough drops myself. Can you guys hear me? You have. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. You just said you... It's all that water outside your house full of mold spores and... It might be. Krakens. Yep. Dustin, can you hear me? I'm surprised he hasn't been texting us. Yeah, I texted him. Wait. Oh, I see. They can't... Ouch.